0: Hey there, preachers. This is Rachel Wren. Before we begin our episode for the day, we just wanted to offer you a moment of quiet, of devotion, of reflection, and prayer. We have no idea the stress that you are under, but we are certain that it is immense, and probably your times of prayer and devotion have somewhat disappeared at this moment in time. So I want to offer you today a poem and then a prayer um, that may just hopefully ease your hearts and minds a a tiny bit in the midst of this craziness and chaos. So the poem is called Perhaps the World Ends Here, and it's not explicitly about faith, but the end has this beautiful Eucharistic image that I thought might... uh, might be helpful. And um, it's about a kitchen table, which for many of us who are quarantined at home um, has become more and more of a resonant image these days. So called, Perhaps the World Ends Here by Joy Harjo. The world begins at a kitchen table. No matter what, we must eat to live. The gifts of earth are brought and prepared, set on the table. So it has been since creation, and it will go on. We chase chickens or dogs away from it. Babies teeth at the corners. They scrape their knees under it. It is here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. At this table, we gossip, recall enemies and the ghosts of lovers. Our dreams drink coffee with us as they put our arms around our children. They laugh with us at our poor, falling-down selves, and as we put ourselves back together once again at the table. This table has been a house in the rain, an umbrella in the sun. Wars have begun and ended at this table. It is a place to hide in the shadow of terror, a place to celebrate the terrible victory. We have given birth on this table and have prepared our parents for burial here. At this table, we sing with joy, with sorrow. We pray of suffering and remorse. We give thanks. Perhaps the world will end at the kitchen table while we are laughing and crying, eating of the last sweet bite. Dear preachers, I'm guessing many of you long for communion right now for that holy meal that we share with each other where we sing with joy, with sorrow where we pray of suffering and remorse where we give thanks and it is my prayer for you all that you may feel the sustenance and strength of the Holy Spirit as you wait for the day when we can gather physically as the body of Christ and know his presence and his joy and his love among us thank you for all you do And may the joy of the risen Christ fill your hearts. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and all other lovers of the Bible. I'm Rachel Wren.
1: And I'm Tim McNinch. This week, we're bringing you preaching tips for Jeremiah 31, 1-6, to which is the first reading that's scheduled in the lectionary for April 12th, 2020. You might know that date. It's Easter Sunday. And I just got to say at the beginning here, you know, I'm totally on board with the vision of what we're doing here, Rachel. First reading. But come on. Easter? Easter?
0: <laughs> I know. It's a bit of a stretch, right?
1: Yeah. Well... That being the case, you know, for all of you bold, adventurous, audacious preachers out there, we want to at least equip you. If you wanted to preach from the Old Testament on Easter Sunday, we're going to give you what you need to at least get in the in the direction of a good quality sermon on this text in Jeremiah. And uh, to help us do that, we've called in reinforcements, right?
0: Absolutely. And you're darn right about that, Tim, because if it were not for the Old Testament, we would not even have an Easter Sunday. So if that's not reason to preach from the Old Testament on this Sunday, I don't know what is. And we have no one better to help talk us through this task than Dr. Michael Chan. Michael is an assistant professor of Old Testament at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. He got his M.A. from Luther Seminary and a Ph.D. in Hebrew Bible from our very own Emory University. Mm -hmm. Michael's research interests have ranged from iconography to biblical emotion to ancient Near eastern comparative data. In other words, all over the place. So if there's any questions we have today, he's totally going to be able to answer them. (laughs) We recommend to you Exploring the Bible, uh, co-written with Dr. Eric Barreto. Uh, This is more towards seminary students and adult learners, so it's a great reminder for your toolkit and also maybe a Sunday Bible study series. Uh, With that, Dr. Michael Chan, welcome to First Reading.
2: Hey, it's good to be here. Thank you both so much. This is going to be so much fun. Such a fun text, too. I mean, Easter and Jeremiah and all kinds of stuff. So. It's
0: kind of like a confluence of wonderful things, isn't it? That's
1: yeah, right. It that's absolutely is. Right. Yeah, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, you know, Michael, how did you get involved in this whole field in the first place? What drew you to studying the Old Testament professionally?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I was originally interested in systematics, and uh, my first year of seminary was actually at a um, uh, Four Square, Church of the Foursquare Gospel Seminary in Los Angeles and uh, I was uh, a TA for a church historian and a system of tissue, kind of did taught in both areas and so I was really interested in that kind of stuff and then I encountered sort of randomly uh, the work of Terry Fredheim oh. who is uh, Rachel one of our mutual professors at Luther Seminary mm. and I thought holy cow I never knew the Old Testament could sing like that yeah. and I had read his book The Suffering of God which remains one of the great biblical theological works of the 20th century, I think it was published in 84, absolutely worth reading. Um, and so when I read that and saw the way that he worked with kind of biblical imagery, I thought, wow, this is what I want to do. So that's what I did. And uh, when wrote, did an MA uh, with him on uh, horticultural imagery in the book of Isaiah, actually images of God as gardener, which mm-hmm. is actually going to apply for in, to Jeremiah a little bit.
0: Well, and it's so interesting, too, to hear that because you've really taken that whole concept of the biblical imagery and uh, the Old Testament singing and you've run with it in multiple different directions. So it's been kind of fun to to follow your work a little bit that way. So uh, on that note, Michael, would you read the passage for us today?
2: You bet. I'll be reading from the NRSV. Um, It's a common translation that I think a lot of people are using. And we're reading Jeremiah 31, 1 through 6. At that time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again I will build you, and you shall be built. O virgin Israel, again you take your tambourines and go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again you plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when sentinels will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Come, let us go up to Zion to the
1: Lord our God.
0: such a beautiful text.
1: Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm really eager to jump into it as such a great text in its own right. But maybe we could just take a moment to continue our little apology for why in the world we would preach anything from the Old Testament on Easter Sunday. And so I, I sort of wonder what, what either of you might have to say about that. Is there a role for Old Testament readings on Easter Sunday?
2: Yeah, and, and Jeremiah is actually precisely the place where you'd want to be. I mean there are a lot of places where you can talk about resurrection, right? Daniel or Ezekiel or whatever. But one of the things that like Donald Gowan has seen clearer than most people is that the is that the God of the Old Testament is a God of death and resurrection. Mm. Um, And and we see it clearly here in in Jeremiah, where we're really talking more about, you know, the return of exiles and homecoming in the nation and whatnot. But it is nonetheless a a text about death and resurrection. Mm. And so one of the reasons why you want to preach from the Old Testament, or at least make strong reference to it, is just to say like, resurrection wasn't a new idea. <laughs>
1: right? <laughs> this
0: right.
2: This wasn't Jesus' idea to you know be <laughs> resurrected or something like that. This is the kind of God that Israel has always had mm-hmm. that brings life out of barrenness or that creates uh, uh, streams in the desert and whatnot or brings people home after a long season of death.
0: Yeah I love that. I, I think you know just thinking in terms of that, I can come up with so many Old Testament stories that bear witness to that. And one of the ones that comes to mind most quickly for me is Elijah, where he is literally sent to a creek and fed with roadkill until the creek <laughs> dries up. And if you're not close to death at that point, I don't know what, you know, what death looks like. So I love it. <laughs> well, well, let's dive in a little bit deeper. Um, so this text begins in so, in the same way that so many lectionary texts do where it starts at that time. And so you're immediately Mm. left with a question, what time are we talking about?
2: Well, yeah, this is, I I saw this in the notes and I thought, oh yeah, and I I really don't, I don't wanna beat up too much on the lectionary people because I know this is really hard work. And and so, but this is a, I think a pretty clear case. I think this is an example where the creators of the lectionary have mistaken chapter divisions for pericope divisions. Mm. Um, And what I mean by that is that I think there's a better case to be made that 31 verse 1 is actually the conclusion to the previous oracle, whereas verse 2, which begins with with the phrase ko amara Adonai, common phrase for prophetic oracles to begin with that is really the beginning of the text mm-hmm. and so the, this whole business of at that time is actually a reference to uh, a text of wrath that
1: comes in the prior chapter. And if that if that chapter division versus pericope division is a surprise to some of you who are listening one of the ways to flag that even if your Hebrews not so great uh, is to take a look at various translations the JPS for example formats their uh, rendition of Jeremiah with 31, one as part of the previous pericope. So that's, it's helpful to kind of see how different translations have organized to the chapters like that.
0: So one more just quick historical note. Tim picked up on the fact that all of the names in this text seem to be of northern origin, where Jeremiah is a Judahite prophet, and this is after the sack of the north by Assyria. So mm-hmm. Do you have some insight into, is Jeremiah drawing on the relationship between the north and the south to make his point, or is there something else going on here?
2: No, I think that is actually really important. So I think, Tim, you're mostly talking about verses five through six, right? We have, where you have references to uh, yeah. like Samaria and Ephraim. That's right, that's right. No, I think it it is quite purposeful, again, going back to this idea that uh, there are a lot of texts, or there are several texts in Jeremiah that seem to have this expansive vision of the future that... Homecoming is not just homecoming for the South. It's actually mm. homecoming for Kol Yisrael, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um yes. for the for the entire people. So nice. that's why I think you have this reference to Samaria and Ephraim.
0: Mm. How about in that first verse, there's that really famous phrase, um, you know, you shall be my people and I shall be your God. This is this is like a big biblical theme that draws across many books, um, and is often repeated in Jeremiah as well. So what what might have been triggered by that phrase for an original audience for someone who was well versed in the biblical stories or the biblical poetry?
2: Well that's an that's an interesting question. Um, certainly I think the this this idea that we're talking about all of Israel and again not just the south like this is a dream of dreams right a a, a vision of the re- not only it's it's not only a vision of a return home it's also a vision of reunification. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I think is, there's a sort of a double promise there, like it, it, that in some ways, a Judahite only reality is an incomplete vision. Mm. Right. It's like deeply incomplete um, because you have all these tribes that emerge from, you know, Jacob's uh, Jacob's line that are not there. Mm-hmm. You know, there is like this mm-hmm. gaping hole, and but this vision in Jeremiah says, "No, that promise remains." You know, the mm-hmm. promise was to all uh, to all of these families. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, the other thing to remember too is that, like, these northern tribes or these these uh, Ephraimite tribes were not just like they were lost.
0: Yeah. You
2: know, like that's different. They were they were yeah. lost and defeated like they were defeated militarily. Mm. And this is somehow like those people that we once thought were dead are now actually going to return home. It, it, I almost think about like you hear these stories sometimes about Holocaust survivors who didn't know if family members had survived. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, but then there's a, that's a different kind of reunification and surprise and delight that a person might have actually survived and could then be reintegrated into the family.
0: And a death and resurrection theme yeah. again. Mm. Well, let's uh, let's go on to verse two, an easy little verse, right? Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's
2: just that I think it's important to say that if you're going to dig into the Hebrew here, um, it gets really messy toward the end. It, it's in many ways a beautiful image, right? The people who survived the sword, found grace in the wilderness, like that's potentially a very beautiful image. But it just becomes difficult to interpret as we get to the final line. Right. The um, the haloch Lehargio, Yisrael. This the last three words are very, very difficult to understand.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How would you work with those? Uh,
2: I, I think it from a preaching perspective, right? Um, I think you can sort of confidently go with what what the NRSV has done, which says when Israel sought for rest. I don't let me put it this way. There are some textual features that if you wrestle with them will bring forth gold. Right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there can be uh, benefit in displaying that conflict and that wrestling with the text publicly. Mm -hmm. This is not one of
0: those. (laughs) Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about that ragah a little bit—the Hebrew yeah. word um, for rest. Um, that's another. This this is a short text, but in some ways, it's such a rich text because some of these really important biblical themes just are kind of. Popping up one after another, almost like a cascade. So, talk a little bit about the idea of rest and people being brought yeah. to rest in the Bible.
2: Well, I think we could talk about it just in terms of Jeremiah too. So, like the the root is also in the heath eel in particular is also used in fifty in chapter fifty, where where God kind of talks about bringing rest to Haaretz to to mm-hmm. the land of Israel, mm-hmm. and so there is this kind of larger sense of 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 peace from conflict. I think that's certainly part of it, and you see that here in the verse as well that whatever rest means it's it's somehow about survival mm-hmm. and I mean it's interesting right that this this grace um, that is found the chain that is found is found Bamid bar right in the will, in a place of affliction
0: mm-hmm. right grace is
2: found in a place of adversity mm-hmm. and so I think there are some interesting ideas there
1: Mm-hmm. And the contrast between Midbar and uh, the, the land, like oftentimes when we hear the term rest in, in the Bible, there's a sense of place, like of coming home, of being home, um, whether it's the people or even God, you know, being at rest. God is at rest in the temple like that's uh, when when you're where you're supposed to be. That's what rest is like. And so the theme of exile, whether it's the like Exodus tradition, that wilderness tradition, or the later exile of the northern or southern kingdoms, that is unrest. And rest is being at home in the land. So that that theme of a sort of homecoming, that type of resurrection in this passage, uh, I think is it's suggested by that term. I think that the Exodus tradition here is more
2: than, I mean, it is strongly invoked, <laughs> not, <laughs> not just by the bamid Bar, which you're absolutely right about that, um, but also in the next verse. But you have like the first uh, the first line say, uh, Merachok Adonai Nir Li. So from a distance or maybe even from like the past, from, from the past, something like mm-hmm. that. Um, Yahweh appeared to me like this phrase Nir'a Li is almost lifted word for word from Exodus 3.16, except for mm. there it's nir a or it's l as opposed to le, and so I think the Exodus tradition is, like, clearly part of this, and I, I really love how you, Tim, were just talking about the connection between, like, rest and place, mm-hmm. I, I, that's, for me, absolutely part of this text.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: The other thing that's coming up in verse, by the time we're getting into verse 3 here, is uh, the the concept of love, we we have um, both the word ahava and also chesed in this in this verse, and I uh, just wonder kind of how that theme is beginning to open up in in this passage.
2: I love this phrase, olam. Aḥavtiḥ. I with. uh, I don't know. I think I heard uh, one. uh, I read one interpreter who translated this as a love of ages. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, Mm -hmm. nice. Uh, Which is a nice way of doing aḥavat olam. This sort Mm -hmm. of everlasting love I don't know it just feels too like formal to me but to think about it as like a love of ages like this is an ancient love that we have
0: mm-hmm. that's funny that it's funny you'd say that because when you said love of ages I kind of went into the future like a love <laughs> for the ages but you went backward into the past which is interesting
1: yeah and the and the the kind of look back to an ancient love would fit the parallelism of the line too if we're looking at from the previous line god appeared to me you know from a distance, or from the from the way back past, mm. you know, with a with a love, an ancient love.
2: No, I think the the temporal element is actually really important here because you're going to get a shift to the future, or at least to the present. Mm-hmm. Um, Seemingly in verse 3 and this is kind of a thing that exercises commentators. They're like, wow, this is strange You know, you have all this kind of narration from the past and then suddenly the shift to the to the present But I think it plays to what Rachel was saying about how olam perhaps we're talking not just about the past But also about like it's everlasting, right? It's an evergreen love. It's always uh, It's always there and always has been there Mm -hmm. and um, That sort of helps you kind of make sense of God's continual chesed uh, toward uh, toward the people. So from, from my perspective it's like the, the love of the past somehow informs how we think about God's love for us in the present and also in the future.
0: Well, well let's maybe transition to 4 and 5. There's some really fun stuff going on in 4 and 5 and one of this is the repetition of odd which is the Hebrew word to mean again. Um, ironically enough again, shows up again and again and again yeah, in that. these couple of verses. So, so what do you make of that? What's going on with that?
2: Okay, so I think that the, so you have ode uh, t- is it two or three times? Three? Well, yeah, because we spill over into verse five. So I think it's a total of three times mm-hmm. again, again, again. And so I think this actually does relate to the chesed element. The ode carries a lot of theological weight here. This is how God is with Israel. Mm-hmm. Again, I will build you. Again, you shall, you know, take up these elements, these uh, musical instruments. Again, you shall plant. It. So it, it's sort of like there's a history here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or it, 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 it's it's not necessarily like a return to the good old days. Like, let's make Israel great again kind of thing. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but there is but there is this element of there was a time when you inhabited the land in a way that was fruitful. That mm-hmm. time will come again. And I, because I, God, am faithful to you again and again and again. So I think that the O does carry a lot of weight.
0: Yeah. You mentioned words that are big ticket words in Jeremiah and um, build and plant. I mean, those are, we're going all the way back to the beginning with those words, right?
2: No, we are. I mean, this is basically Jeremiah's call. I just pulled it up here in, in, uh, in chapter one, verse 10. Where God says, "See today, I appoint you, uh, Jeremiah, over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant." Leave note velintoa, and so these are like this is Jeremiah's call that's coming mm-hmm. out here. Mm. You know, it's powerful.
1: It's it's maybe worth uh, touching on in verse four the the word betulah, which comes yeah. up there, and and just sort of how we understand that. I think NRSV might call it Virgin Israel. JPS is Maiden Israel. And uh, that's just, I don't know, not a common way that we talk about the people of God, perhaps. And and I just wonder what either of you would have to say about that.
2: Yeah, the Betulat Yisrael here is is cer- certainly interesting. I'm I'm not certain that virgin is quite the right way to do it. I think Maiden might be a sort of a better approach. But I think, so there are a lot of reasons why a person would want to flag this that terminology Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, in part, I think in in the notes you all had mentioned some me too type things. And I think there are a whole range of reasons why a person at least would want to include a hefty footnote.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) The other thing that jumps out at me about it, and I, I haven't done any sort of, you know, word study on how this is used in the prophets or in Jeremiah, but it surprised me to hear a sort of innocent term Feminine, feminine term for Israel, where I'm used to hearing the prophets talk about unfaithful spouses and all of this really derogatory uh, language, you know, sort of condemning them for their unfaithfulness to God. And here, it just sounded like part of this vision for the future that God was bringing to the people was a return to innocence, like a kind of a re-virginization of the people, like that that God would call Israel Betulah again there's like this starting over starting fresh sort of thing. I wonder if that's really in the resonance of this text or if maybe I'm just reading that into it.
0: I think it could be I just um I just know that so many girls have been subjected to purity culture, which actually can even suggest there's a process of re-virginization quite literally mm. after sex has have been had. So I'm, I'm struggling with this because I think on the one hand, it is very clear in the text that this is what's going on. I think you're right, Tim. I think it is this return to innocence and the way that it's being been framed is through the sexuality of a woman, which was controlled, which was, you know, all of the things that we talk about. Mm -hmm. I just don't know that we could do a productive sermon using that terminology today. And I I think that's where I would caution people. I I wouldn't want to mess with the text too much. I do like maiden much better Mm -hmm. than I like virgin because it um, suggests youth more than it suggests sexual activity. Right, right. so, but I I think I would just caution people that this is maybe an image not to pick up and run with in a sermon because they're um, especially if you're a man and haven't been subjected to female purity culture, uh, you don't know what you might be triggering or or bringing up in that moment.
2: Yeah, that's a good word. yo know, I think, yeah, no, I think that is a, I think that is a really good word. And so, yeah, you might uh, choose it in this. This was NRSV. You might choose an alternative translation or just, uh, you know sort of print your own translation heaven in the bulletin or whatever project it on and then just change the change the language but you know you could imagine doing a longer text study of Jeremiah Mm -hmm. where you might have more time to deal with some of these issues or at least raise them and say hey look I know um, some of you have had these kinds of experiences around purity culture and I just want to say that um, I want to acknowledge that and say that if this kind of brings up things for you, that as a pastor, I'm here to talk about those Mm -hmm. things. And Mm -hmm. these are some of perhaps the problems and cultural baggage that a verse like this carries.
0: Yeah. Uh, Let's jump real quick, if we can, to verse five where it talks about vineyards. Um, This word popped out to me uh, when I was thinking about preaching on Easter because a vineyard is a very evocative image that Jesus uses a couple of different times. We have the very famous parable of the laborers in the vineyard which is this beautiful text about grace and then we have the parable of the wicked tenants which is not so much a text about grace but more leans towards the death side quite literally the death of the vineyard owner's son so what what sort of you know since this is such an evocative word what did vineyard signify in judah at this time why are they talking about planting them in Samaria, where yeah. vineyards haven't been planted by Judahites for centuries? And are there any reson- resonances between this whole idea and Easter?
2: Yeah, those are really good questions. So let me tell you what immediately comes to my mind, and then let's kind of work from there. Of course, the, the horticultural imagery is quite expansive within within the prophets. You know, this was just part of their daily lives. These are is an agricultural society but what also comes to mind is that uh, we have access to some tribute lists where uh, where we know what sort of was being sent as tribute Mm -hmm. and what was being requested and wine is one of them.
0: Just to clarify real quick for our listeners a tribute is sent when you are conquered by a foreign nation and you get to keep your king but the price of keeping your king is you have to send taxes and the taxes take the form of tribute and foreign kings love getting that tribute.
2: (laughs) 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 Gotta feed the monster. Yeah. Um, and no, that's a, thanks for that clarification, Rachel. And so one of the, it, it, grapes and wine do not grow well in Mesopotamia. And so Israel, one of the sort of desirable tribute items was wine. And mm-hmm. so part of what this image evokes for me is this notion that what you once had to give away in a system of domination, now you will be able to keep and enjoy.
0: Uh, yeah, in a system of chesed, you get to yes. keep and enjoy.
2: Nice. It won't be robbed from you anymore. Um, but it, this will also be the uh, inheritance of, you know, perhaps the northern tribes as well, right? You have the reference here to Samaria. And, and it, as the verse says, they will actually be able to plant and enjoy. It won't be robbed from them anymore. Nice. So for me, it's an image of kind of prosperity and luxury, but also in the context of the larger project of peoplehood, right? Uh, self-governance the Mm. ability to be sustainable from within one's own boundaries. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it is worth noting in uh, verse 6 that whoever wrote this oracle wants to make sure that you don't get confused to think that oh we're not going back to the old system where they're like all these different cults we will all go to zion (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. keep in mind that jeremiah like lives (laughs) through the reign of josiah right (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but it says come let us go up to zion to the lord so this is not like a sort of return to the way things used to be in the divided kingdom this Mm. is a uh, a vision of Israelite religion centered in Zion as Jeremiah would have it you know, okay. and, as, and as Deuteronomy would have it, of mm-hmm. course too
0: i think I think that's a really nice point that we should we should sit on for a little bit because I do think this the past imagery could lend itself so much to saying, remember when our church was full, remember when all of our children came, remember when all of that time, and what I hear you saying, Michael, is that very clearly, this is not a return to the time when people went into the cults and to the tribes and said, come let us go up to Zion, because that time hasn't really happened yet. What this is an image of is political reunification, but more importantly, a time when everything is actually centered around God in a way it has not yet been.
2: That's a really nice point. You yeah.
0: made it. <laughs>
2: no, 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 but you, uh, you said it better. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the, no, this is a new future, right? For sure, mm-hmm. I agree with you.
0: Beautiful. Well, let's maybe start to tip into some practical suggestions. Um, we've talked a little bit about some preaching pitfalls around language, around um, timing. Uh, any other preaching pitfalls you guys can think of?
1: Well, let's say one, one that came to mind for me, just as I was thinking about how to preach a text like this, there are lots of ways to sort of make a metaphorical connection between the faithfulness of god and sort of new life and renewal and and i'll probably will say something about that when i talk about a, a preaching angle here but then I, I caught myself i just wanted to mention that we always want to be careful when we take a passage out of the prophets like this and just go straight to christian metaphor with it that yeah. it, i think it's important and and i think that we as christians have an ethical responsibility to note that the the remnant of Israel that's mentioned here and in the in the next passage as well that that's not just an ancient reality like there are descendants of these people who are with us today worshiping communities the the Jewish people who are walking out their faith with this as their scripture. And I think it really tips toward supersessionism to take a passage like this and say nothing about the reality of the living Jewish community with us. So I don't know that in a sermon I would uh, spend a lot of time on that, but I would probably at least mention yeah. that this is talking about a people who did experience a coming back and a renewal and that they're with us you know, to this day, you know, seeking God and worshiping. And that the approach that I'm taking, if I am taking a metaphorical approach, I should name it as that.
0: I, you know, I think I wonder if one way I think that's a really great point. And I wonder if one way you could do that is if you if you spend some time in verse two and talk about the people who survived the sword, you could talk about the number of times God's people have survived the sword. And in that moment, talk about the Jewish people talk about, you know, the I mean, even up into Christianity, the persecution that the Jews were experiencing, talk about the Holocaust, talk about that the people of God have survived the sword over and over and over again. And God has remained faithful to them over over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good point, Tim. Really good
2: point. That is is really helpful. And I think another way of putting it is just that, hey, look, like sometimes we have been the ones holding the sword, right? Right. The Christians have been the ones holding the sword. And so like sometimes we are Pharaoh, sometimes we are, you know, uh, are on the other end end of the spear, as it were. But I think you're right, Tim. Like that is certainly something to raise here. And especially... You know, later on in this chapter, we have all the New Covenant verses Mm -hmm. uh, about God's going to make this New Covenant, which is explicitly quoted in Hebrews 8. Um, And so Hebrews 8 is like this whole chapter about the New Covenant. And so you can already see, like, as John Levinson says, you know, in some of his earlier work, that there is a a kind of sibling rivalry happening, a kind of Jacob Esau uh, Mm -hmm. fight happening over some of these promises and that we should... Kind of be aware of that history. Mm -hmm. Especially Christians
1: Mm -hmm. should be more aware of that history.
0: How about preaching angles? Tim, what do you got there?
1: So having made all of those caveats about taking a metaphorical (laughs) approach to this, there were a couple themes that I think could could turn into good sermons here. I think there's a lot of imagery here about renewal and sort of a return to uh, a new innocence and simplicity and the potential of new life. The potential there to talk about resurrection in those terms, new fruitful agriculture, fertile land, uh, the people coming home. I I think all of that could be brought into a sermon about how we experience resurrection. You know, another, another thing that I was thinking about was in ancient context, you know, their great disaster was their experience of exile and of a colonial experience. But a passage like this holds out hope for a future on the other side of all of that. God's love and faithfulness to us transcends the epic sort of struggles that that we face as a people, that God's love carries us through that into the other side of it as well. And I was thinking, you know, the the sort of big uh, issue as we're recording this is the coronavirus outbreak and the prospect of some dystopian outlook but a passage like this says that, you know, no, no matter what happens as we face something that is causes so much anxiety for us, God still holds our future, and we can hold on to hope even through the midst of horrific things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's maybe some potential there.
2: So I was kind of drawn to verse 4. If I were to have to... Think about this in terms of sermon themes and the lines again you shall take up your tambourines and go forth in the dance of the merrymakers and i was thinking about seasons in life when it is difficult to sing mm. Mm. or difficult to sort of make celebratory music and th- here's a pop cultural reference but my daughter and i were watching wonder woman last night yes. and uh, which she's like totally into wonder woman right now and like yes. dressing up like wonder woman and all which is awesome um, but there's this scene, you know, after they get to the front, right? Uh, and, and Wonder Woman, like, kicks everybody's butt. And then they finally liberate that little town. And everybody's, like, drinking and dancing and all late into the night. And Charlie, the sniper who sort of yeah. sometimes can do his job and sometimes can't, he sits down at the piano and the Chris Pine character says, I haven't heard him sing in years or whatever it was. Something had sort of happened to him that allowed him again to sing. And I was thinking about that scene and thinking about this verse and thinking, I I bet there are a lot of people who know what it's like to have a season of kind of musical silence uh, when they can't make the song. And so that is at least a kind of image or point of connection with this text, I think.
0: Oh, that actually brought me to tears, Michael. I love that image, um, especially because if you're preaching this on Easter, like that's where the that's where Mary Magdalene is when she goes to the tomb. That's where the disciples are when she comes with her news. They they cannot sing. The music is gone. Um, so that's a that's a beautiful image and a beautiful connection.
1: Yeah, what a great image, and Wonder Woman. And Wonder Woman, absolutely. (laughs) Any sermon that
0: mentions Wonder Woman is great by me.
1: (laughs) Rachel, if you were going to preach this, what angle would you take?
0: So this would take kind of a gutsy preacher, uh, but I think it could end up being a really interesting Easter sermon, is if you start your sermon completely in Jeremiah, you don't mention Easter right away. You just start in Jeremiah and you lay out the picture of Jeremiah and you, you highlight the tribute. You highlight that tribute and what it would have meant to send the fruit of their vineyards in tribute. And then what this promise means to receive the fruit of your vineyards. Because you use the term, Michael, systems of domination. Mm. And if I think of the death of Jesus Christ, I think of a system of domination attempting to kill the one who is speaking against it. And then what you have when Jesus rises is a system of chesed or a system of ahava, a system of love, a system of faithfulness, which cannot be beaten by the system of domination. So if you start in Jeremiah and really just flesh that out, and then at the moment of tribute move into Jesus Christ. I think that could be a really faithful way to use this text almost as a parallel to the Easter story without making some of the supersessionist moves that we've talked about in the past. So if you've got the guts to do that, I would love to see that <laughs> sermon. So please do highlight it in some way. We'd love to see it.
1: That's great. Well, I'll tell you what, at the at the beginning of our conversation, I don't know if I was totally convinced, but now I am. I think If you are preaching on Easter Sunday and you don't use Jeremiah 31, you're doing your congregation a disservice. I think this is, uh, we've had such a fruitful conversation here. And Michael, thank you so much for being with us and for the insights that you were able to give us in this conversation. Oh, I'm honored.
0: Remember friends, if you are interested in more of Michael's work, we are recommending his book, Exploring the Bible. He also has his own podcast, Gospel Beautiful, which takes biblical themes and issues of religious life and wrestles with them in the context of today with other special scholars and pastors, so do check that out wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, you could give us a rating, you could share us with a friend, you could share both podcasts with a friend. We would love that. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren.
1: And I'm Tim McVinch. Have a great Holy Week and a happy Easter.